Jai Radha Madhava Kunjabi Hari Gopi Janabal Labba Girid Bar Dhari Jai Gopi Janabal Labba Girid Bar Dhari Yashoda Nandana Braja Janaranjana Yashoda Nandana Jai Radha Madhava Kunjabi Hari Jai Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Srimad Bhagavatam, 7th Canto, Chapter 13, The Behavior of a Perfect Person, Text 1, and we may go all the way to 6. Sri Narada Vacha, Kalpastvevam Parivrajya, Dehamatra Vesheshitaha Gramaika Ratra Vidjidna Nirapekshas Charem Mahim Kalpastvevam Parivraja Dehamatra Vesheshitaha Gramaika Ratra Vidina 
Nirapekshashcharyam Mahim Kalpastvevam Parivrajya Dehamatra Visheshitaha Gramaika Rachavidina Nirapekshashcharyam Mahim Muni said. Kalpa, a person who is competent to undergo the austerities of sannyasa, the renounced order of life, or to prosecute studies in transcendental knowledge. To, but, evam, in this way, as described previously, Parivrajya, fully understanding his spiritual identity and thus traveling from one place to another. Dehamatra, keeping only the body. Avaseshita, at last. Grama, in a village. Eka, one only. Vatra, of passing a night. Vidina in the process. Nirapiksha without dependence on any material thing. Charet should move from one place to another. Mahim on the earth. Translation Sri Narada Muni said, 
A person able to cultivate spiritual knowledge should renounce all material connections and merely keeping the body inhabitable. He should travel from one place to another, passing only one night in each village. In this way, without dependence in regard to the needs of the body, the sannyasi should travel all over the world. Text 2. A person in the renounced order of life may try to avoid even a dress to cover himself. If he wears anything at all, it should be only a loincloth. And when there is no necessity, a sannyasi should not even accept a danda. A sannyasi should avoid carrying anything but a danda and kamandalu. Text 3. The sannyasi, completely satisfied in the self, should live on alms begged from door to door. Not being dependent on any person or any place, he should always be a friendly well-wisher to all living beings and be a peaceful, unalloyed devotee of Narayana. In this way, he should move from one place to another. Next four. The sannyasi should always try to see the supreme pervading everything and see everything, including this universe, resting on the supreme. Text five. During unconsciousness and consciousness, and between the two, he should try to understand the self and be fully situated in the self. In this way, he should realize that the conditional and liberated stages of life are only illusory and not actually factual. With such a higher understanding, he should see only the absolute truth pervading everything. Purport. The unconscious state is nothing but ignorance, darkness, or material existence. And in the conscious state, one is awake. The marginal state between consciousness and unconsciousness has no permanent existence. Therefore, one who is advanced in understanding the self should understand that unconsciousness and consciousness are but illusions, for they fundamentally do not exist. Only the supreme absolute truth exists. As confirmed by the Lord in Bhagavad Gita, Mayatam Sarvam Jagatabyaktamurtina, Matstani Sarvabhutani, Nachaham Teshravashtataha. By me, in my unmanifested form, this entire universe is pervaded. All living beings are in me, but I am not in them. Everything exists on the basis of Krishna's impersonal feature. Nothing can exist without Krishna. Therefore, the advanced devotee of Krishna can see the Lord everywhere without illusion. Text 6. Since the material body is sure to be vanquished and the duration of one's life is not fixed, neither death nor life is to be praised. Rather, one should observe the eternal time factor in which the living entity manifests himself and disappears. Purport. The living entities in the material world, not only at the present, but also in the past, have been involved in trying to solve the problem of birth and death. Some stress death and point to the illusory existence of everything material, whereas others stress life, trying to preserve it perpetually and enjoy it to the best of their ability. Both of them are fools and rascals. <laughs> 
It is advised that one observe the eternal time factor, which is the cause of the material body's appearance and disappearance, and that one observe the living entity's entanglement in this time factor. Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakura therefore sings in his Gitavali, Anadi Karma Pale, Bodhi Bhavarnava Jale, Tari Bharina Deke Upai. One should observe the activities of eternal time, which is the cause of birth and death. Before the creation of the present millennium, the living entities were under the influence of the time factor. And within the time factor, the material world comes into existence and is again annihilated. Bhutta Bhutta Paliyate. Being under the control of the time factor, the living entities appear and die, life after life. This time factor is the impersonal representation of the Supreme Personality of Godhead who gives the living entities conditioned by material nature a chance to emerge from this nature by surrendering to him. Om Aganatimadandasya Gananjana Shalakaya Chakshun Militang Yena Tazmai Shri Gurave Namaha Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nitananda Shri Advaita Gadadhar Shivasadi Gaurabhakta Brinda Hey Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare Narada Muni has been describing the various ashramas, as well as the occupational statuses, the varnas, the ashramas. Human life actually begins with varnashram dharma. As long as you keep that point in mind, you can understand we don't have human civilization today. In spite of all the technological intricacies, in spite of all the economic pressures and practicalities, without dividing society into varnas and ashramas, you don't have a real civilization. This point is made throughout Srimad Bhagavatam in the Bhaktivedanta purports, both explicitly, implicitly, and in between. So once we understand the bar, the standard for a real human civilization, then everything else becomes clear. And the necessity of our bhakti lifestyle becomes more obvious to us. Otherwise, if we really think we have human civilization today, we may just consider, well, bhakti is like a little trinket that you put on top of your regular life. There'll be many persons like that, no doubt. But when we hear Srimad Bhagavatam, we're getting the essence. Everything should be arranged in society. Everything should be arranged in our individual life so that we make progress back to Godhead. So that we are progressive. That means moving forward. Not mired in one place, stuck in one place, and sometimes thinking, oh, maybe I should push ahead. Maybe I should become more spiritual. So by hearing the descriptions the classic descriptions of the Varnas and Ashramas, we get the spirit of Varnashram Dharma, although obviously we cannot apply everything quid pro quo, as it's stated here. Otherwise you would say, well, 
A person in the renounced order of life, you read, may try to avoid even a dress to cover himself. <laughs> well, <laughs> I haven't done that. <laughs> I'm not wearing tree bark. <laughs> well, it says spend passing only one night in each village. Well, not exactly one night in each village, but <laughs> a few nights in each village we spend. And of course, when you read the Grihasta section, hmm, looks very, very different from life today. So this is why a founder acharya is necessary. How to apply these Vedic principles in the current context. Just like Srila Prabhupada said that you could say the real standard for chanting Hare Krishna is 64 rounds a day. But noting the mm, psychophysical nature of people in the world today, Srila Prabhupada fixed the minimum at 16. And then he would comment wryly, and they're not even doing that. So we need the help of the parampara. They know how to apply the scripts the prescriptions so that we can make spiritual advancement even in the most difficult times. Once we understand that not only do we not have human civilization, but that we're also living in very difficult times, then things start to become clear. Otherwise, we become overpowered by this concoction that when is my happiness going to come? It's out there somewhere. Everyone is getting happiness except me. Where's my fair share? And a bit more. <laughs> we have this embedded notion that the material world owes us something. It owes us a smooth ride. Okay, a few bumps from time to time. But basically a smooth ride, nice money, nice relationship. Success, respect, we have that notion that this is our God-given birthright because we took birth, therefore we should get all these things. Of course, there are many persons in the world struggling in severe situations, just trying to survive. But apart from those, when we're in a momentarily advantageous situation, we think, oh, my life is basically successful. Although that kind of success has no enlivening taste to it. And that's why many of you are here practicing Krishna's instructions. Because you, with your intelligence or your experience, have seen that just a plain vanilla material life, no matter how successful and wealthy, doesn't give the taste that you want. It doesn't give that to your family. To understand the nature of the material reality is very essential for our progressive spiritual life. Otherwise, we would think, what, what is the point of all this, this chapter, the behavior of a perfect person, in which a Paramahansa is described? How does that relate to us? By reading such verses, you get the point that you're up against the time factor. 
This is what text 6 tells us. Since the material body is sure to be vanquished, and the duration of one's life is not fixed, neither death nor life is to be praised. Rather, one should observe the eternal time factor in which the living entity manifests himself and disappears. This is a very profound statement of how we should look at our life and our context, our situation in this world. We're drowning in an ocean of time. Sometimes we bob up to the surface and sometimes we go under. And this is what we call normal life. So Narada Muni is advising, observe the time factor. Don't become bewildered by this constant coming and going of phantasmagoria, phantom-like situations that appear and disappear. Now to observe the time factor takes some skill because generally we think when we're young, just like these young ones here, they think they've got all the time in the world. They can't wait to grow up. And, <laughs> and then when they grow up, you can't wait to be young again. <laughs> this is victimization. <laughs> The little ones think, oh, when, when, when they'll become teenagers, they'll have more freedom. <laughs> and then when you're old and your body is breaking down, you think, oh, let me revive the inner child in me. <laughs> this is the illusion of the time factor. <laughs> no one is actually ever satisfied with where they're at. You're always looking for something else, something more, something better. So Narada Muni is teaching essential skills. And in fact, as stated in text 6, <clears throat> one who is advanced in understanding the self should understand that unconsciousness and consciousness are all but illusions, for they fundamentally do not exist. What's that all about? Remember in the 14th chapter of the 10th canto, Lord Brahma makes his famous prayers after the Brahma Vimo and Alila, the bewilderment of Lord Brahma. He says, Agyana Samgao Baba Banda Moksha. Actually, both liberation and bondage have no real existence. In other words, the spirit soul is always perfect in of itself. But the states of going into illusion and coming out of illusion are external. They're superfluous to the eternal purity of the spirit soul. So the example given by Lord Brahma is that on the sun planet, is there any day and night? Day and night is caused by the absence of the sun. So we divide days and nights. But if you're actually on the sun planet, which is shining constantly, where's the day? Where's the night? Similarly, if you're actually fixed in your eternal constitutional position, what's the question of liberation or bondage? Doesn't exist. Everything depends on your standpoint. So that is Lord Brahma's instruction. Agyana Sangha Bhava Bandha Moksha. Actually, liberation and bondage have no meaning in the ultimate sense. Because spiritually, the soul is always awake in perfection. So Narada Muni is making you aware of the time factor 
and therefore he's presenting the ashramas in such a way that you make progress in coping with the time factor because that time factor is what is working you over and we're drowning in the ocean of it. In the third canto of Bhagavatam, Lord Kapiladev gives a striking example that just like the big clouds in the sky, sometimes you look in the sky and you see these big white clouds, they seem to be hanging there. But those clouds, so to speak, don't understand. They're not aware. They're not conscious that with just a gust of wind, those clouds are gone. Similarly, Lord Kapiladev says, the living entity is not aware of the power of the time factor, which just like the wind blowing the clouds suddenly out of the sky, the time factor is blowing us all around, but we're not aware. Remember Muchakunda in giving his autobiography to Krishna. You know how Muchakunda was awakened from sleep purposely by Krishna so that Muchakunda could finish off the demon. And after asking, who are you? He asked Krishna, who are you? He realized, I'm in, I'm in the inferior position. I should explain myself. <laughs> Krishna did tell him a little something, but Muchakunda felt obligated that let me give you my autobiography. Out of humility. And he describes how he was a great king, a great emperor. And he says something which Prabhupada states so eloquently in the Krishna book. He says, during my rule, my majesty, my power, my might, I forgot about time. But what? Time did not forget about me. <laughs> it's a very deep statement that we can meditate on and see the reality. I forgot about time, but time did not forget about me. So whether you're young, like these little ones here, or you are elderly, time, as they say, is marching on. But we forget about that. So Narada Muni is presenting the Varna and Ashrama system as a means to understand that time is gobbling you up. Muchakunda says, just like a snake gobbles up a mouse, similarly, without warning, time pounces on you. It doesn't often give you advance warning that your death is coming. There's one statistic in the USA where they acquire statistics about everything. That 70% of the people who die do not die in the way they anticipated or wanted. 70% <laughs> think what? I will die which way? Huh? At home, in my sleep. 70% of people think that's the way it's going to be. Meanwhile, 70% of the people die in hospitals. So again, we forget about time, but time does not forget about us. Time is chasing us in the form of old age, disease, death. So Narada Muni is doing us a great favor. Look, here's the classic Vedic system. The whole point is how to get out of the clutches of time. I'm thinking of Krishna 
getting up in the morning after he's left Vrindavan for Mathura. He gets up early that morning and he doesn't tell Nanda and the elders where he's going. He and Balaram and the cowherd boys, they rise early. They do their morning ablutions in the Yamuna River. And then they hear the sounds coming from the wrestling arena. So without telling it, the elders, Krishna, Balaram, and the cowherd boys, make their way to the wrestling arena, hearing the sounds. What is Krishna thinking? The acharyas say, Krishna's thinking, it's time for fun. <laughs> What's that fun? Huh? Yes, terminating the existence of unsavory persons. <laughs> so Kamsa had everything all arranged. Kamsa and that elephant, Kuvalayapita, they are demonstrating the power of time. They think, Krishna, your time has come to be finished. They don't know that Krishna is the master of time. So ordinarily, Kamsa, Kuvalayapita, and Kuvalayapita's elephant trainers, normally they'd be correct. That elephant was unparalleled in strength and ferocity, fierceness. So the elephant was the representative of time, ordinarily speaking. But the elephant is about to deal with the master of time. The elephant has no idea. It's totally outgunned. So Krishna approaches the gate with Balaram. And he, he sees that Kuvalayapita, the elephant, goaded by his trainers, is blocking the entrance to the gate. Because you know now, you know Kamsa's plan. Certainly Kuvalayapita will kill Krishna and Balaram. If they just happen to make it by them, which is impossible, I have the wrestlers ready, Chanura, Mushtika, etc. But they'll be finished at the gate. So Krishna sees the obstruction to his progress. And he says twice, Oh, elephant keeper! Oh, elephant keeper! Move out of the way. Otherwise, prepare to be dispatched to the kingdom of Yamaraj. <laughs> he says it. Oh, elephant keeper! Oh, elephant keeper! Twice. Because he's angry. What is this? The Supreme Personality of God being angry. But Krishna's tasting viraras. He's tasting chivalry, combat. And he's known as Shauri. He wants to please the Chatriyas. <laughs> you think that you're a big warrior? Watch what I do. <laughs> so Krishna doesn't simply dance with the gopis. <laughs> he has other devotees who are attracted to him in his warrior mode. And it's all fun for Krishna. Just like it's fun for Krishna to be rejected by his girlfriends and then have to beg, please, please. <laughs> it's also fun for Krishna to have to fight with the most powerful demoniac forces. So this is Krishna's vision. I'm having fun. <laughs> and the elephant trainer and Kuvalayapita they're doing the bidding of Kamsa. Uh, they think it's, it, it's going to be an easy victory. So Krishna moves forward 
And Kublai Apita and the elephant trainer, they get even more angry. He's defying us. He doesn't understand. His end is nigh. His end is going to happen any moment. So the elephant takes the trunk and wraps it around Krishna's waist. And what does Krishna do? With his left hand, he punches the elephant. <laughs> now, Krishna could have finished off the elephant immediately, but that's no fun. <laughs> he wants to drag the whole scene out. <laughs> so therefore, he and the elephant go through a whole performance. I was talking to some of the young men yesterday visiting from Adelaide. Teenagers and just about to become teenagers, right? And they're all telling me they're, they like sports. <laughs> and the parents were a bit upset that oh, they shouldn't like sports. I said, have mercy on them. They're young men. <laughs> they got lots of energy. <laughs> so they like sports, cricket, and basketball. <laughs> but when you hear about Krishna's sports, you understand nothing can compare to that. And Krishna wants to show you. You like sports? Watch this. <laughs> so the elephant has wrapped its trunk around Krishna's waist. But Krishna escaped, punching the elephant with his left hand. And then the elephant continues with its attack. Very angry, more angry with each moment because Krishna should be finished immediately. So what does Krishna do? He goes underneath the elephant, and the elephant can't see him. The elephant can only smell him. So Krishna is moving first behind one leg of the elephant, then behind the other leg of the elephant, then another leg of the elephant, and the elephant is <laughs> can't see, it is smelling. And this is explained by the Acharyas. The elephant can't see Krishna, but is smelling. And then the fight continues. Krishna grabs the elephant by the tail. He appears in the back of the elephant and starts pulling the elephant by the tail, just like a little cowherd boy would pull a calf by the tail. And so as Krishna is pulling the elephant by the tail, he's having so much fun. <laughs> the elephant is trying to break free and is moving left. And when he moves left, Krishna moves right. And then the elephant moves right, Krishna moves left, because Krishna's pulling. <laughs> so he's pulling, and he does it slowly. Krishna pulled, is pulling him slowly, because again, he wants to drag the whole scene out. <laughs> he wants to have as much fun as possible. <laughs> so he slows down his speed of pulling the elephant by the, by the tail. And the elephant is going this way, this side, that way, the other side. And then Krishna adopts another method of dealing with the elephant. He trips the elephant with his body. The soft body that Krishna has, softer than a lotus flower. And he uses it to trip, to hit the elephant's legs from underneath so that the elephant trips over him. And then what does Krishna do? The battle is becoming more and more intense and Krishna is having more and more fun because that's the nature of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Ever increasing bliss. So Krishna is showing you, this is getting better and better and better and better. <laughs> so Krishna is underneath 
the elephant because Krishna tripped the elephant by, with his body, making the elephant trip over, the elephant's legs trip over his body. So then the elephant thinks, Krishna is on the ground. So what does the elephant do? I'll stab him with my tusk. So the elephant stabs, but Krishna's already moved. So the elephant's tusk simply winds up embedded in the ground. <laughs> so then the elephant freezes tusk from the ground, but then Krishna grabs the trunk of the elephant and pulls him by the trunk and throws the elephant on the ground. Krishna rips out the tusk of the elephant, one of the tusks, and then finishes off the elephant by beating the elephant with the tusk and finishing off the elephant trainer also. And then Balaram grabs the other tusk. And both Krishna and Balaram, each one having a tusk, elephant tusk on their shoulders, marches into the wrestling arena. <laughs> And the Shastra describes how there is Krishna's face beautified by the drops of perspiration from the elephant, beautified by drops of blood from the elephant, and beautified by drops of Krishna's own perspiration. So you might say, what is this? Krishna has a Satchitananda body and it's perspiring? But, but this only manifests according to the Leela. <laughs> Krishna's body has no defect. We think of perspiration as a defect, it's unwanted, but for Krishna it's all part of his beauty. And the pers his perspiration appears and disappears according to the necessity of the Leela. So the elephant, remember, ordinarily would be time to finish off whoever the elephant comes in contact with. But Krishna is the master of time. As Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, Kalosmi, because Arjuna sees the universal form and says, who is this? And Krishna says, I am time, coming to devour everything. So Narada Muni is teaching us to observe the time factor and adopt a lifestyle that acknowledges the devouring of time. So in the purport, we read for text six that some persons stress the negative side. Death ruins everything, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, as the Christians say. And the, everything is an illusion. It'll all come to an end. All things must pass, as the Old Testament says. Whereas the others say, You've got life. Focus on that. Enjoy while you can to your best of capacity. So what does Prabhupada write in the purport? In ecstasy he writes, both of them are fools and rascals. <laughs> both of them don't understand the movements of time. And on a deeper level, both of them don't understand that liberation or bondage are both illusions for someone who is perfectly situated. Because Asango Hyayam Purusham, the spirit soul, has no contamination. 
but it takes on an illusory state of contamination. So if you're actually inherently perfect and complete as part of Krishna, what's the meaning of liberation and bondage for you? But when we forget that by the power of the illusory energy, then liberation and bondage have a meaning. So speaking about Mathura, once Krishna and Balaram entered the wrestling arena, the ladies of Mathura finally get their chance to see him. And they comment, what kind of austerities must the gopis of Vrindavan have performed to be able to constantly drink this nectar of Krishna's beauty? And that beauty is ever fresh and self-perfect. What did they do? The Acharyas point out that, in, in other words, the, the ladies of Mathura, the Mathura Vasis, they're questioning, is anyone here omniscient? Can you tell us how did the gopis in Vrindavan attain such a sight? So someone might say, this sight is eclipsed by the beauty of Narayan and other incarnations. No, there's nothing that surpasses the beauty of Krishna's original form. So what kind of austerities did the gopis perform to be able to drink that beauty, the nectar of that beauty, drink it with the cups of their eyes? The answer is no austerities can bring you such favor. There has to be pure love of Krishna to see Krishna as the residents of Vrindavan see him in utter sweetness. Then, another point is raised, very significant. Since these gopis drink constantly the nectar of Krishna's beauty, they must get tired of it after a while. Because when you do something tired, when you do something constantly, you get tired of it. Seems logical, right? They see Krishna all the time in Vrindavan. They've drunk it constantly. They must not be so amazed anymore. The answer is no. The nature of Krishna's beauty is ever fresh. In fact, with every moment, the beauty increases. You can, go, you can drill down even deeper. What about saying that Krishna is excellent because he has acquired such beauty? No. Krishna's beauty is ananya siddham. It is self-originated, self-perfect. It's not something he acquires. He, he himself is the essence of beauty. So much so that when he puts on ornaments, he beautifies the ornaments. Everything about Krishna is avyaya. Indestructible, inexhaustible by time. What to speak of? Aprameya, immeasurable. The more we become conscious of Krishna, talking about Krishna, hearing about Krishna, the more we become immune to time. That's the only solution. Therefore, bhakti is the most practical approach to life. Who else can handle time? But even the newest devotee here has embarked upon a program to conquer time. <laughs> 
And of course, much more precious than conquering time is developing love for Krishna. Drinking the beauty of Krishna's form like you drink nectar. And that beauty is ever fresh and increasingly attractive at every moment. Hare Krishna. Any questions? Yes. Welcome to Melbourne. Uh, what about the beauty of Radharani? <laughs> Radharani's beauty, they say, is million times more than Krishna's. Of course, we know Krishna's beauty, and Radharani has come from Krishna. She, she origin is from Krishna. Both of their beauties increase by seeing the beauty of the other. That's right. <laughs> so try first to understand that. <laughs> Anything else? Yes? Oh, excuse me. But why is mo mo one million times, they say? Radharani's beauty is one million times more Can than you put a, a measurement on it in the spiritual world? <laughs> Everything about Radha Krishna is aprameya, immeasurable. What speaker of yaya, inexhaustible. Thank you. Yes. Verse 5, Prabhupada says both unconsciousness, thank you. Verse 5, Prabhupada says both unconsciousness and consciousness are both, but illusions. So since our movement You're eternally conscious of Krishna, but you've forgotten. Dormantly, you are Krishna conscious, but you've forgotten. These states of wakefulness, deep sleep, and dreaming are artificial divisions imposed on the pure spirit soul by the illusory energy. Similarly, as Lord Brahma says in his prayers to Krishna, Agyana Samga Bhava Bandha Moksha, liberation and bondage actually have no meaning because the, pure, the spirit soul is self-perfect, inherently, essentially. Aniruddha Prabhu. Uh, Hare Krishna Maharaj. Um, you mentioned in the beginning of the class that Varnashram is essential to arrive at the human platform. And Prabhupada emphasizes Varnashram many times. You know, he repeats it almost every second or third purport. Prabhupada refers to the Varnashram uh, institution. Yet, in the beginning of the chapter that starts this section, before there's the description of the varnas, there's the 30 qualities of a human being uh, mentioned first. And um, Prabhupada more or less says in the purports that um, without cultivating those qualities, Oh, sorry, no, not without quality. That the only way to cultivate those qualities in this day and age is to actually become a devotee. So um, it appears from that, from the progression of that that chapter, that in order to come to the Varnashram stage, first of all, one has to become a human being, and in order to do that in this day and age, we have to become devotees. Right? So. I guess the question is, why does Prabhupada emphasize Varnashram so much? 
when Van Ashram depends on also just uh, you know becoming a human being or becoming a devotee in this in this day and age. Prabhupada's mission is doing, trying to do something ex inconceivably extraordinary all at once. Make people into human beings and transcendentalists often at the same time. So as I often point out at initiations, the four regular principles do not make you a transcendentalist, they make you a human being. And it's the chanting of Hare Krishna that elevates you to the spiritual platform. What you have in the world today is an absence of human qualities and an absence of Varnashram Dharma, however way you want to look at it. Actually, real Varnashram Dharma produces human qualities. We don't have real Varnashram Dharma and the world today has long forgotten about real human qualities. So it's a complete mess. So whether you want to start this way or start that way, approach this aspect or approach that aspect, we have to do something. Anything else? Thank you for the nice question. <laughs> I'm thanking you in advance. Hare Krishna Maharaj, thank you for the wonderful class. <laughs> Maharaj, um, you said that liberation and bondage has no meaning for the devotees. So, but Prabhu, uh, Maharaj, I was reading in Srimad Bhagavatam in the third canto when Kapila Muni is instructing his mother that he says that devotional service can be in the mode of goodness, passion and ignorance. So I would like to ask if something pure like devotional some, like something pure like devotional service, how can it be, be mixed with something material like the material modes? Bhakti in of itself is eternally pure. It's identical qualitatively with Krishna in terms of the quality. But our approach to bhakti can create impurities, distortions. But real bhakti in itself is always pure. You remind me of an example experienced by one of my departed god brothers. Uh, I forget his sannyas name, but his initiated name was Makunal Prabhu. So he was walking, he told me this directly, he was walking with Prabhupada and he asked Prabhupada that same question. Lord Kapiladev says that you can perform bhakti in a mode of ignorance, passion, or goodness. Does that apply to your disciples? So Prabhupada kept walking, walking, and then suddenly turned around and said, who is my disciple? <laughs> in other words, are they real disciples? So the, the devotee said, well, Prabhupada, a real disciple is so someone who follows your instructions. Does Lord Kapiladev's classification apply to them? Prabhupada said, no. <laughs> of course, are we really following the instructions? That, that is the point. Just like, are we chanting Hare Krishna with the proper intensity that can help us have anartha navritti, freedom from all these dirty things in the heart? We're always questioning our chanting. What? Chanting Hare Krishna solves all problems, no doubt about it. But what is the intensity of our chanting? That is the question.
sometimes I think, I'm chanting this same mantra that the Panchatattva chant. What's the difference between my response and their response? And we're chanting the same mantra. What's wrong with me? <laughs> Anything else? Anirudh Prabhu would like to comment. We're happy that he's healthy or overcome the food poisoning? Uh, it happens occasionally. Yes, tell us. You can tell that to a traveler. It happens occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> All night you're up dealing <laughs> yeah. with the effects. Yeah. Um, going back to the... Um, duties of the householder and um, Prabhupada talks about in one of the purports how uh, a married couple should get permission from the spiritual master before they have children right and um, uh, very few devotees actually do that but but what um, struck me was the implication of that instruction that the relationship and Prabhupada mentions this the relationship between the guru and the disciple is very intimate and it's 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 it's, it's the, the activities of the householder are done with the mood of pleasing this the spiritual master we have a situation where many of us don't have that kind of relationship with our guru where we can check, you know, to regularly, am I doing the right thing, am I, you know. So that, so that internet connection is, and some, some disciples don't even get to speak to their gurus. They, they have such a, they have such a um, distant relationship. So it um, kind of got me thinking, well, how do we fulfill that requirement to have an intimate relationship with the spiritual master? And especially because Prabhupada says, you know, the relationship between the spiritual master and the disciple is good as one's relationship with, with Krishna. Right? So I was thinking, how do, how do we as a community or a, 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 even as individuals fulfill the intimacy of those relationships when sometimes the relationships that we have with, say, our initiating guru might be very distant, right? So, on the, and you know, that's very practical. Even Prabhupada did that. Prabhupada, and Prabhupada at one point said, I don't want to hear any, no more letters from my disciples, right? So on the one hand, Prabhupada's saying, implying there needs to be a very intimate relationship, but then in other circumstances, paradoxically, Prabhupada said, "No more questions." So how do, so, but, but still that you know that intimacy is required, and so I, I was thinking, Ooh, okay, how do we actually, you know, given those that the context in which we exist within ISKCON, how do we develop that um, intimate set that those intimate connections that are required actually for us to make spiritual advancement, you know, in in our community um, setting, if you like. There are many ways to <laughs> answer that question, but I can point to one aspect that you and I have discussed. Srila Prabhupada, without a doubt, his original vision 
for initiations carrying on after his departure was geographic consideration. Someone who's nearby. And that was taken to an extreme during the immature phase after Prabhupada's departure. That was taken to an extreme of requiring persons in a certain geographic tract to take initiation only from that person. So then it went way to the other side. Wild ride on the pendulum. <laughs> that someone on the other side of the world, I, I like that person, okay. That's my guru. That's everyone's choice, but if you want to bear in mind what Aniruddha Prabhu just said, you want to arrange for as intimate a relationship as possible. Of course, real intimacy is through the instruction. Just like for me, I never got, a, in Prabhupada's physical presence, I never got a personal instruction from him. I, I didn't even get a word out of him. I simply got a long sound. <laughs> what, would it, what would you do if that happened to you? You'd be angry. My guru doesn't even say a word to me. He just says a sound. Prabhupada walked into my office at the BBT, looked me over and said, Mmm. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> then he walked into Jayadweta, then Brahmachari, Jayadweta's Brahmachari's office and said, Jayadweta means parambara. <laughs> so I just got a sound during his physical presence. Of course, real intimacy is created by the Vani, the instruction. And that's what Prabhupada's disciples had to learn after his departure. That Prabhupada himself said, his books are better than him, meaning his, reading his books is a better way of associating with him than physically and that everything he wanted to say is in his books, that his books are meant for all levels of devotees, from the most neophyte to the most advanced. If you want to know me, he said, read my books. There's intimacy. I was just reading, since this has come up, I was just reading the third canto, questions by Vidura, and then I looked at the second canto, the first chapter of the second canto, first step in God realization, and each time the purports were like, I never read them before. The depths, the ingenuity, it was just shocking. That's intimacy. Of course, as far as householders asking their guru, can we have children? You can pray in your heart for guidance. If you're able to ask your spiritual master, you can do that. But you see, practically speaking, and I heard this was discussed at the famous Govardhan retreat last month, that there are different types of devotees in ISKCON. There are the types who are very congregational. <laughs> <laughs> they basically just want to add a little dash of, a dab of Krishna on top of their life. And then, you were there for that discussion? Uh, uh, and then there are the types who, everything for Prabhupada's service, everything for Krishna's pleasure. And then there are the types, 
called the confidential devotees. Why confidential? Because they're determined, I'm going back to Godhead after this lifetime. I've had it with the material world. I want to serve Krishna. So there are different levels of devotees. Some householders are very strict in terms of their following the regular principles. The other, because they want to go back to God in his lifetime. Others are, well, Maharaj, we're householders. <laughs> there are going to be lots of those. <laughs> so we have to accommodate everyone. But one thing you can be sure, you get what you pay for. <laughs> what you get will be what you deserve. So it's up to you to decide how strict a householder you want to be, whether you want to be amongst the huge mass of devotees who just adds a dab of Krishna on top of their life. I like kirtan, I go to a kirtan, I go to the temple for Janmashtami, I give a donation from time to time. That's all wonderful. And most devotees in Iskand are like that. But then you have those who are sold out to devotional service. It's my life and soul. And then you could say even more advanced than that are devotees who say, that's it in this lifetime for my material existence. No more. I'm going back to Krishna. So Prabhupada's mission has to accommodate all these different types. What level you want to be, that's up to you. you you'll get what you can pay for, paying in terms of your bhakti. Anything else? Oh, more. Well, I had a thought about that. I just... Um, because the spiritual master is represented by many individuals, you know, Prabhupada says, Krishna, oh, sorry, the, the Guru is one. And so um, it may be, or it is, a fact that we actually have many Gurus. And, um, uh, you know, when we, when we think of the Guru, we think of the initiating Guru primarily. But Krishna also manifests in the form of the instructing spiritual masters. And so in order to fulfill that requirement or that uh, <coughs> indication that Prabhupada gives us, that implication that the relationship between the guru and the disciple should be um, very personal or very intimate, we can fulfill that requirement in more than one way. It, you know, and so um, it's helpful for us sometimes even if we um, don't have a, a strong connection with, say, our initiating guru, that we also have um, strong connections with other devotees who can give us that support. So, for example, having a family might be just a practical thing, you know, and, and if we have senior people who can advise us, um, we can fulfil that requirement in... You know, somebody might say, you know, I'd like to have a family and and, and the seniors around them would say, for example, that's not a good idea, you don't have enough money, you're not living in a, in a settled environment, you don't 
have a steady job, you know, so it can be practically applied um, in more by more than one by more than one relationship in that in that in the community context, I guess. And it's just a, a way of fulfilling that requirement. Yes, as I was saying, nearness is a prime consideration. So as Prabhupada says twice in his books, generally the one who gives siksha becomes the diksha guru. But due to our scrambled international system, <laughs> we've gone way from that point, far from that point. And it's true. I, I, I have disciples that say in South America, uh, I have disciples in Russia due to the circumstances I, I not able to see them and so I'm hoping that they take guidance from someone who's physically present there because uh, a barrages of emails don't really help the situation <laughs> but perhaps we should go back to Prabhupada's emphasis on nearness whoever is nearby. And that way you start to understand why he said twice in his books that generally the one who gives the siksha becomes the diksha guru. Without that everything gets a bit intricate and we have to do the necessary. If, so, if I have a disciple in South America and says, Kumaraj, can I take guidance from so and so? Of course, I, as long as it's a genuinely accredited devotee, uh, when am I going to go to South America? <laughs> and I don't plan to go there again. <laughs> Whereas here in Melbourne you have to put up with me a few times a year. <laughs> gladly, gladly. Okay, <laughs> no, but, but, but that's very interesting because you, you're here, you've been, you're part of our you know, you're part of the family. And so there's that intimacy and care that's taken on your part to look after the devotees, and that's what's appreciated, and that's what makes it very practical. And um, but it's interesting, isn't it? What Prabhupada says there supports that notion of the local guru and that that devotee there to help support. You know, the the guru is like the servant of the of the disciples in that he helps them arrange their life so that they can be Krishna conscious, but also you know be through the practical. Another item of geographical nearness, Srila Prabhupada told His Holiness Tamal Krishna Maharaj. This is recorded that every temple should have one senior devotee who's based there permanently. So here in Melbourne Mahabharu Mandir, you have Aniruddha Prabhu who is based here eternally. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. Hare Krishna. <laughs> supposed to come to this meeting at 12 noon? Where is it? In my office. One hour? Yep.
That's what we're scheduled. Uh, yes. Yeah. We're starting at 10. We're starting at 10.